How's that? So do I have to say everything I just said before for the con- I'm not going to. Anyways, so we were talking about our process. And one of the things um, I said to the individual is that I, one of the things my process, especially with Scripture, is understanding the history. See, the Bible doesn't just emerge from the clouds or from an angel telling a human being what, what to believe. It kind of emerges out of a background of a people, of, of a time and a place. And so that's always important. So last week, what I was trying to do was trying to help you to understand that. Let's just recap a little bit what we talked about last week. So last week, we started by asking the question, if you ask the wrong question, you will always get the wrong answer. <clears throat> I think one of the things that our culture is doing is... Um, is, is actually is, is trying to actually do a bait and switch. So the bait and switch really kind of goes like this. Hey, let's talk about this, but not, let's not talk about this. Let's have this conversation, and let's not have this conversation. And again, not that I want to omit one for the other, but I think they both can be held in balance. Um, what I said to you last week was that Paul gives us a biblical perspective on intimacy and relationships. And again, I, I just I can't be any more clear on this, that uh, apart from culture, apart from yourself, again, I'm not here to tell you what to believe. I'm not tell, here to tell you what to, how to think or what to behave. My job as, as your pastor or as a pastor is just to simply tell you what the Bible tells us. And it's up to you to decide whether you want to align yourself with that. But one of the things we talked about last week as well, too, is that Paul also gives us boundaries, right? So it's not as simple as saying, this is what the Bible says, or thus saith the Lord. Because Christians have kind of made a mistake with that because they've used that as the, the kind of the hammer that they would use to kind of talk to culture. And the two, the two passages of scriptures in particular that we centered in on was uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 2. It says this, I can hardly believe the report about the sexual immorality going on among you, something that even pagans don't do. And I told you that the word that Paul uses for sexual immorality is a word that they use in the New Testament. And Paul didn't come up with this word. So what's interesting is when I was studying this word, I didn't just want to tell you, explain to you what the Bible says. I also was curious as how other commentators who have a different perspective, how do they approach it? One commentator completely lied, but if you didn't know this, you would just accept it. The commentator says, Paul uses this word, nobody else. That's actually not true. I showed you last week that the first person to actually use this word is Jesus. He uses it in the Gospels. So we go, okay, so what Paul does is he actually takes this concept from Christ and expands it to the church in Corinth. So the word is porneo, and again, it's not just used in the Gospels, it's not just used in the letters. John, you know, the Apostle John, the last living disciple, uses it in the book of Revelation seven times. So what, what I tell you about this, what I say about this, is that there is a continuity of the clarity of Scripture upon this. But the boundary that Paul gives is, is, is a little bit further down. It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. God will judge those on the outside. You know, there's a famous saying that, that Christians tend to use. You know, it's so funny to me how there's these things that Christians say, but we actually don't actually, you know, we don't actually think about the biblical implication. People say, well, you can't judge other people. Well, you can't judge people outside of the church, but Paul says you can judge. Now, the word that Paul uses for the word judge, and I don't, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole here, but it's just basically saying take their lives and compare it or contrast it to how the Bible lives. And I showed you this, again, this kind of, again, I, I, as I've said before, I'm a visual learner, thus the slides and, and, and everything I do is because I learn by seeing. Uh, I know that's not everybody. Some people are just auditory learners. And if you're an auditory learner, I am, have so much respect for you. I'm not smart enough for that. I have to see it. And so I put together this diagram because this is kind of what Paul is saying. So on the one hand, we have the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven is meant to live by certain values that the kingdom of heaven, that Christ and the entire, entirety of the Bible give, lay out for us. But then we have culture. Now, what's really important is the kingdom does not get to tell the culture how to live. And the reason the kingdom doesn't get to tell the culture how to live is because the culture doesn't believe the Bible. Right? So I've said to you before, and I said to you last week, over the last six, seven years, the question I get asked more as a pastor than anything else was, what's your, pa- what's your church's stance on, and they gave me a series of letters. 
previous to this, it was, what's your stance on this? Or what's your stance on worship? Or how do you view youth? Or how do you, you know, like, like these are the different kind of, like, what denomination are you? Or, or, or you know, like, uh, one person asked me, you know, what's your stance on speaking in tongues? And that was a whole different conversation. But, you know, these are the questions we used to get as pastors. But now the question we get is upon identifiers, right, in the cultural sense. And remember I said to you that that's the wrong question. The question isn't, what's my church's posture on these letters? The correct response, and this is a, so I used to answer this question, and the good news is we're part of the Christian and Missionary Alliance. I just copy and paste a link from our, our website and said, here you go, and, uh, and, and that's it, right? But now I respond to the question more in a Christ-like way. And by Christ-like way, I just simply don't answer the question. I just ask them another question. And the question I ask them is, what's your posture on the Bible? See, the thing, the, 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 if we answer the question without answering the deeper question, we're going to get the wrong answer. So the question isn't, hey, what's your church's stance on? Just pick whichever topic you want. My response now is, what's your posture on the Bible? Do you believe it to be true? Is it mythology? Is it redacted? Like, what's your posture? And once I have that conversation, then I know how to answer the real question you're asking. So I said to you this last week, authentic Christianity is seen in our alignment with the Bible's framework of living our faith amongst those who do not believe. Oftentimes, a lot of what Paul is trying to say to the church in Corinth, Ephesus, Galatia, Thessalonica, whatever other word you want to use, is simply this. You're a Christ follower living amongst a Roman culture. Do not lose what it means to be a Christ follower, but do not yell at the Romans for not living as a Christ follower. See, it's a balance. So, Christians tend to know the one part is like, this is how Christians live, this is how you should live. But if a person doesn't believe the Bible, why? The person doesn't have the, the, the conversation of, 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 um, of Jesus and, and how the Bible lays out, then why would they believe it? And then why would we impose that upon them? Right? And that's why I spent a lot of time last week looking at Roman emperors looking at the cultural history of what's going on in Corinth so that you understood that the church in Corinth could have said to the Corinthian population, this is how you should live. They never did that. But the mistake they did make was trying to adopt the Corinthian culture into the kingdom culture, and that was the primary mistake they made. So that's what we talked about last week, and we got through that. And again, for those of you who missed it, it's on, it's on our YouTube channel. I, was very, I wasn't certain whether we should put it on YouTube, but we did because uh, I think I knocked it out of the park, but that's just my opinion. Okay, so this morning, we want to start off by the next chapter, and by, before we get to that, I want to talk to you about addictions. I know, that's just how I do things, right? Um, <clears throat> great article uh, called The Best Steps to, to Take in Early Recovery to Protect Your Sobriety. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so many of you know, and I've, I've said this before, I have been involved with addiction recovery for a couple of decades, uh, running 12-step programs. And, and as I said before, I'm, a, an, I'm an enormous fan of 12-step programs. I, I say this to you because it is, in my opinion, the most effective way to help people wrestle and combat addictions, whatever it might be, substance, habits, whatever it might be. So I have, I have tracked addiction, addiction recovery for, for, again, decades because, again, I see it to be a very effective way. But what I always find interesting is when people use the word addiction, I always think to myself that we, as Christ followers, we're addicted to something. Well, we're addicted to many things, but the primary thing that we're addicted to is sin. So whenever I think about addictions, I really think about us wrestling with our addiction to sin. So I want to have this conversation before we jump into the next one, because this conversation is going to help us to understand um, addictions. So for those of you who know anybody who has struggled with an addiction, or if you yourself have struggled with addiction, you know what they call the first 60 days. It's very important. The reason it's very important, because the first 60 days is when you start breaking habits. Now, what you may or may not know is a habit or an addiction has certain mental and, and social and environmental triggers. The reason why rehab is a great way to start, not, not everyone can afford it, mind you, but it's a great way to start, is what happens is it isolates those triggers, and then what it does is it helps you walk through, you know, what are the circumstances, what's going on here, and then that's why 60 days is really important. And what we call this is the early parts of recovery. I just want to share you a couple of uh, thoughts that, uh, that uh, Megan Blackford puts down, because it's really important, and again, 
as every, with every sermon as I start, you're asking yourself, where the heck am I going? And I know, just hopefully stick with me by the end, you'll understand. But this is what she says. Early recovery is a volatile time that goes one of two ways. Either you stay sober or you relapse. Clearly, the goal is to stay sober and gain as much time as possible. While recovery truly is day at a time, the more days you get, the stronger you'll be. So in sobriety, what we know is that you do not conquer or overcome addiction, but what you do is you wrestle with addiction for your entire life. That's fine. But what's interesting is, is the more time that you create that is in, in, in sobriety or abstinence, the stronger your impulses or how you react will be. And we go, okay. There are things you can do in early recovery to protect your, your sobriety. A lot of them has to do with the planning ahead of time and making sobriety your priority. You don't want to beat yourself up over the past and how you ended up in rehab. At the same time, you want to keep it in mind. It's called playing the reel through. So that whenever you feel uh, like picking up a drink or a drug, you remember exactly where you ended up last time you made that decision. Now, again, frame this in a way of talking about sin. Now, remember, I've said this before, just to remind you, the sin that really wrecks us as Christ followers is the habitual sin, right? It's not the sin that you've done once or twice. It's the one that is the one that's always at the back of your mind that is, again, like an addiction. And again, there's a whole host of what this could be. And again, we don't need to go through it. But the point is, you can see why I've seen re recovery and rehab and, and all of that as, as a metaphor of sin. But here's what I want to get to, because this, this is the part that I really want to kind of zero in on this morning. There are a few things you should do to keep your sobriety intact. Remember, recovery is a very individual experience. And just like addiction, it pulls from your own personal experience. Now, this is the part. Identify triggers. So she has an entire list on how to keep your sobriety intact in the early days. This is the one I want to center in on. Knowing the who, what, and when that caused you to drink or do drugs in the past is a huge part of preventing relapse in the future. Know what these things are and avoid them as much as you can. This may require cutting ties with people who were once close to you or pick up and moving to a new place. It's worth doing and part of having a fresh start after rehab. Now, there's something called outpatient care within rehab. What that means is after your 60 days of intensive, or, or actually not every rehab is 60 days, but your first you know, few weeks of rehab, what they'll do is they'll put you in an outpatient group, right? And so what that does is, is it surrounds you with people who are wrestling with their own addictions. And what they find is the more time you have of that, the easier time you'll have reintegrating into normal society. Now, what's really important about this, this is the hardest part for addicts. And this is actually a precursor that they may have in regards to whether they will be successful or not. Because what this does is, is every addict knows that they will have surrounded people, the surrounded people in their lives that will basically support their addiction or, or even facilitate it, right? So if it's, if it's drinking, right, if it's alcohol, well, you have a group of friends who you go out on a Friday night to drink. Well, if you're an addict, what do you do? Well, you can't go out with them to drink. Why? Because that is a trigger for your addiction. So if you are as serious about your sobriety as you need to be, you have to have an awkward conversation. And that awkward conversation goes something like this. I can't go with you or participate in this anymore because this is going to cause a relapse. And your friends, if they really are your friends, all of a sudden go, oh, well, we don't have to do that then. Well, that's fantastic if they do that, but oftentimes they won't. What they'll do is, well, you don't have to come. We'll go out. That is like torture to an addict because what that means is isolation and aloneness now is their new best friend. And, of course, we are social creatures, and therefore we, the question they have to ask themselves is that, is my recovery you know, as important to me as staying at home by myself on a Friday, Saturday, or, or whatever time of the week as my friends go out to have fun? And, of course, we can't have fun or do anything without putting on social media so that all you'll see is the, your friends having fun without you. Now, you understand why I'm having this conversation because what I'm trying to get to you is that, you know, that with whatever sin that is that we have that's, that is a habitual or whatever that we wrestle with, I want you to think about it as sobriety. Because with sobriety, you have to be cutthroat with your sobriety or else you will relapse. So the question we want to ask this morning before we jump into the next chapter here is this. How free are you? It's a conversation we don't really think about, but it's actually a conversation that Paul's going to go on to for four chapters. 
I'm not going to give you all four chapters. We're actually going to use chapter 8 because he actually kind of summarizes it pretty good in chapter 8. But the question he's going to ask is about freedom. And what's interesting about this, this question is, it's a question we've been asking in our culture for the last three years, or maybe two and a half years, however you want to do it, right? So fun fact, yesterday, my daughter and I, Olivia, we have this annual tradition that we go to what's the thing, something called Fan Expo in Toronto. Basically, Fan Expo is 110,000 nerds. Uh, it's like Comic-Con for Canada, which means it's very polite, but it's also, it still smells really bad. And... Um, so my daughter and I and my daughter's boyfriend, we were there at Fan Expo. So it was us and 110,000 people at the Toronto Metro Convention Center. And of course, there was like uh, people you get to pick pictures with. A lot of Stranger Things cast were there. The Four Hobbits were there. William Shatner apparently is still alive, and he was there too. So he's like 800 pounds now, but that's a different conversation, right? But we're driving back from Toronto, and there's an overpass. And I'm driving, and I'm looking, and I'm like, oh, what's going on there, right? So there's all these Canadian flags. And there's this banner draped over the overpass, and it, it says something like this, freedom is the most important thing, or something like that. And I thought, huh. And of course, this is going through my mind because I've been working on this. And so it's like, this is, this is not an, an abstract conversation. This is a conversation we have been having in culture and in church as Christians about freedom. Well, Paul is going to answer this question in a way that's going to be kind of interesting, but very applicable to today. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to chapter 8, verses, well, chapter 8. We're going to go through the entire chapter. It's only 13 verses, so relax. Um, you can get your digital devices out as well, too. And as always, just a reminder, um, we upload all my notes with the sermons as well, too, whether by our podcast or on our, uh, on our video YouTube, so you can have our no my notes as well, too. So chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, Paul sets the stage by answering this, asking this question. Now, regarding your question about food that has been offered to idols, yes, we know that, and again, he uses quotations here, we all have knowledge about this issue. But while knowledge makes us feel important, it is love that strengthens the church. Anyone who claims to know all the answers doesn't really know very much. But the person who loves God is the one whom God recognizes. So Paul starts off by having a conversation about meat offered to idols. Now, of course, we Westerners get to go, not applicable, right? And, and again, I would say to you that that, is, that might be true, but I think there might be some deeper implications. Ray Stedman on his commentary on this says this, the best place to buy a good roast or a good steak in Corinth was right next to the idol temple. In these pagan temples, they did like the Jews did in the Old Testament days. They offered living animals as sacrifice. And like the Jews, they reserved some of the meat for the benefit of the priests and also for public sale. So that the best meat markets in Corinth were right next door to an idol temple. Everyone in the town knew that. If you ate some of that meat, you were eating meat that had been offered to an idol. Therefore, the question arose amongst the Christians, if a Christian eats meat offered to an idol, is he not participating in some way in the worship of that idol? It's a great question. And you know what? It's not just a question about eat meat offered to an idol. We as in our culture, we've been asking for corporate responsibility in regards to uh, businesses. So, I wear uh, a shirt, you may, you may have seen it, it's called Tentry. Now, I like Tentry, I'm not here to endorse, nor do I make any funds off of them. But what I like about Tentry, and this is my own personal uh, decision, is every time you buy a Tentry um, article of clothing or whatever, they will plant ten trees. Ten tree, you see that, right? Okay, uh, just for those of you who are slower, I just want to make sure you want to make that connection there, okay? That's not any of you, well, maybe a couple of you. Okay, so... The point with Tentree, and the reason I like Tentree is because I like the outdoors, and I like the fact that if I purchase a Tentree item, and the cool thing is you can go on their website, and they will show you where their trees are being planted, and they will be, they're audited as well, too, so they're fully transparent, fully accountable. Now, I'm not asking you to buy it, but I like the idea of, of corporate responsibility. Well, we're all doing that now, aren't we? We're asking the question about where is this item of clothing made? Was it made by child labor? Was it made in, in conditions that were, you know, um, in, in, in deplorable conditions? We, we are asking these questions, and I think rightfully so, because we should be asking these questions. So we want the places that we are endorsing or, or using our money towards to say, hey, you know what? There might be a better way to do this. And that's not always the case, but I, I don't think it's a wrong thing. So the question is, is that we... We, like the Christians in Corinth, we're asking this question about responsibility. Now, 
What's interesting is, is that there's some, there's some conversation within the church about black and white. And the cool thing about black and white is black and white is so simplistic, right? Because it's binary, right? Good, bad, sin, no sin, or, or whatever, right? We just like this idea. But the problem with that is there's actually parts of the Bible or the parts of life that kind of fall into the gray area. Uh, a commentator said this, we might color this chapter gray because it deals with a gray area in the life of the saints in Corinth. A gray area is an ill-defined situation. That should be setting off some warning bells in your head. Uh, one that is not clearly defined or that exists somewhere between two extreme positions and one that's not conformed to an existing set of rules. Example, nothing said directly in Scripture. Pause. So one of the things that can be the problem with the Bible is the Bible is, and we've said this before, it is an ancient Middle Eastern document written to a certain people of a certain time and a certain place. Fair enough. But because of that, we Westerners, it's not always clear. So if you try to use the Bible as a recipe book, and by recipe book I mean the Bible clearly talks about this, then we go, yes. But the Bible clearly, if you say to yourself, well, the Bible clearly talks about all of this, not so much, actually. So the Bible is more about letting out principles of how we live our lives. And our, it's, it's up to us as Christ followers and really as, as disciples of Jesus to discern and to wrestle with to make sure all our lives are, are, are kind of in alignment with that. Um, in this chapter, we see how Christians are to balance their freedom in Christ and their responsibility in love, to, uh, in love their brethren. The question in this chapter deals with meat sacrifice to idols, but the broader application is what should be our guidelines and our actions regarding questionable things. So one of the things, because I'm old enough to remember, and because of my background, I've mentioned this before, my background is Pentecostal, and Pentecostalism comes out of what's called the holiness movement. The holiness movement was this movement that actually has uh, hints of uh, Puritan uh, thinking, and Puritan thinking was this idea of, of we want to remove ourselves from culture and create Christian culture. And so I'm a child of well, of the 70s, which, again, the greatest decade of all decades. But uh, not because I was born, just because the music is better than anything that's today for sure. But I was a child of the 80s, growing up in the 80s, because the 80s was a time where Christians go, well, you know what, we're losing youth, we're losing this whole culture to the secular world, so let's start creating music, media, yes, um, the whole uh, Left Behind series, yeah, that's, that's us, right? So let's create all this stuff so that we can compete with culture so that our youth and our young adults stop looking to culture and start looking to Christianity. So if you like this type of music, you'll love this. If you like this type of music, well, we have a Christian person that's going to mimic that. Now, the point simply is, what they were trying to do was, is that there was never anything in the Bible about secular music. So just so you know, when I went to Bible college, uh, I, got, I, I, got, I had a really hard time because I didn't, I didn't really conform to the secular music part. I remember in Bible college that there were times where they would have CD burnings because back then that's what we had with CDs. And I remember one time my friend Chris, true guy, not going to tell his last name because he's a friend of mine on Facebook and I don't want you to creep him, but uh, he, he got convicted and got rid of all his, his DVDs, or CDs, sorry. So he just got guys on the floor like, hey, any secular CDs, we're going to burn them. What he didn't know is I went down before and I picked up the ones I liked, uh, Simon and Garfunkel and other ones, and I took this in my room, uh, and that was that was thing. But I remember one of my first encounters was this. The first week is, of course, back then we had ghetto blasters, and I had, I had, a, I had a great one, a lot of great bass, but I was listening to one of my favorite uh, jazz musicians, a guy by the name of Wynton Marcellus, uh, and the album I was listening to was one called Crazy People Music. By the way, Crazy People Music by Wynton Marcellus, fantastic album. But just so you know, jazz, there's no words. It's just, right, just jazz, right? Again, some of you are like, by the way, that's not a really good rendition of what it is anyways. But I was just playing that. I'm doing some work. I'm playing that. And these three guys walk by my door. I can't see them, but they must have done a U-turn because they come back. That was my first warning. And they, they put their hand on the door, kind of casual. You know when people try to get casual, you know it's a serious conversation. And uh, I said, hey, what's, what's the music? I'm like, oh, yeah, because I, I love music, right? Going to the Montreal Jazz Festival is one of the things I love to do. And I'm like, oh, wow, it's, it's kind of a name of Minta Marcellus. I started going, talking about the music, talking about the, the song, talking about the musicians, because I love, I love learning about the, which jazz musicians, session musicians are playing with Winton. And they're like, 
the next question that came out of their mouth should have been my second warning sign, but I was slow back then. And they're like, oh, is it Christian jazz? And I thought, well, that's an interesting question. So my response was, it's instrumental? But what they were asking is, this is the same very question here, is that, well, what's the origin of the music? I had never thought of it in that way. Now, the good news is I wasn't playing like Boston or I wasn't playing Simon Garfunkel or U2 at the time. So that was, you know, they, they were just lucky they caught me at a good day as far as my musical choice goes, right? But, you know, the funny thing is so I actually asked them another question. I said, well, let me go ask you a question. Was Beethoven a Christian? And again, I didn't even know the answer, so I was just throwing it out there. I was like, and they're like, or what about Tchaikovsky or, or, or Mozart or, you know, we listen to classical music and, it, and it's accepted within the church because it's, it's beautiful and it's transcendent. I, you know, I was actually listening to Mendelssohn's Elijah, by the way, which is a gorgeous, uh, uh, a gorgeous piece of music before they had gotten there. And I wish it was in that when I was in there. But anyways, that's when you have a five disc changer and it rotates music. Point simply is, these are questionable things. And, and, and the problem is, Christianity, because it is a mile wide and inch deep within North America, we don't really have good answers to this. And Paul's going to bring this up in a way that I think is kind of interesting. Now, this question of meat offered to idols, this isn't the first time it's popped up, right? Again, Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15 is one of the most important chapters to white people or to Gentiles. I include myself in that, of course, because what it is is that how do Gentiles cohabitate with Jewish people who have dietary restrictions. So in Acts chapter 15, the Council of Jerusalem, the Council of Jerusalem lays down what's called the halakha, the four rules. The halakha, just so you know, is is a Hebrew word for the middle path. And this is what they say. And so my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write and tell them to abstain from eating food offered to idols, from sexual immorality, porneo, um, from eating the meat of strangled animals and from consuming blood. For these laws of Moses have been preached in Jewish synagogues in every city on every Sabbath for many generations. So this concept of meat to idols, it's not the first time it's popped up, right? So this is something that the church in Corinth is really wrestling with. Now, just one more thing before we kind of continue on. The church in Syria, Antioch, which is again Corinth, Compromise of both Jews and Gentiles struggled with the issues. The Jerusalem Council settled the matter by urging Gentile converts to abstain from meat sacrificed to idols. Pause. I said to you last week, and just to remind you, Christianity is essentially a Reformed Judaism. This is why we don't look at the Old Testament going, well, that was for a different time, a different place. It's not what it is. Right? So instead, what we say is, is that even though we are Christ followers, the principles and the, and, and, and the basics of Judaism that are still applicable to us, we go, yes, they're important. Let me go on. This decision was made not to promote legalism, but to keep peace within the church, since eating meat offered to idols was a divisive issue, carrying the possibility of scandalizing fellow believers. Abstinence was expedient. With its ruling, the Jerusalem Council affirmed the need for deference or consideration for the scruples of others. The principle is one of self-denial. We should be willing to lay down our personal rights for the sake of maintaining unity in the body of Christ. Remember that. We're going to come back to that. Spiritual growth takes priority over personal preferences. Now, one of the words that Paul uses in the first couple of verses is this idea of arrogance. In your translation, I use NLT, but in your translation, it might use a phrase puffed up. It could just be, if you're a KJV, arrogant. Now, the reason he uses this phrase, because what he's really trying to get at is more important here. Now, the word arrogant is basically this idea of um, self-aggrandizement, right? We just want to make ourselves puffed up. That's not like us today at all, right? We don't, we, don't, we don't post on social media about how we're right and other people are wrong. So I'm so glad that we postmoderns have kind of grown past that, uh, you know, tongue firmly placed in cheek. Okay, let's go on. Verses 4 to 5. So what about eating meat that has been offered to idols? Well, we all know that an idol is not really a god and that there is only one god. That this, there, there may be so-called gods in both heaven and on earth, and some people actually worship many gods and many lords. What is Paul doing here? Again, he's trying to be very clear about what he's saying. When you offer meat to an idol, whatever an idol might be, you know that that idol doesn't have power or isn't a thing. And Paul's trying to do that. So, but he's also going to do something very Jewish here. He's going to use a phrasing of the Shema. I'll explain the Shema in a second. In verse 6, he kind of uses this phrase. 
There is one God, the Father, by whom all things were created and for whom we live. There is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things were created and through him we live. It's a very, very, um, a nice little kind of Christological uh, version of the Shema. The Shema is a Jewish prayer that is spoken in Jewish synagogues that basically re- repeat Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh your God, Yahweh is one. Right? This is why the Jewish people were monotheists amongst pantheistic cultures. Right? So we go, okay. So what Paul is doing, he's kind of using a Gentile version of the Shema, but using Jesus as a part of that. So kind of centers him and brings them back to it. Let's go on. Look at verses 7 and 8. However, not all believers know this. Some are accustomed to thinking of idols as being real. So when they eat food that has been offered to idols, they think of it as the worship of real gods. And their weak consciences, or weak brothers, perhaps in different translations, are violated. It's true that we can't win God's approval by what we eat. We don't lose anything if we don't eat it, and we don't gain anything if we do. What's important here? What Paul is saying here is it's not about the food. What's he saying? You're asking the wrong question, right? Ask the wrong question, you'll get the wrong answer. So Paul here is being very important. Now, the phrase weak conscience or weak brothers, depending on your translation, is this conversation that Christians have been having for thousands of years, right? How do we deal with the weaker brother, weaker sister in amongst us, right? So growing up, what we dealt with, (laughs) do you know, I think back to the, the arguments that were in the church, and I'm actually still surprised I'm a Christian because I think back to my, these times where people will argue about stuff, and it's like, how is it possible that I thought that being a Christ follower is worth dealing with individuals like this? So you know what one of the biggest uh, arguments I remember is back in the 80s, there was this time where churches started moving from hymnals. So for those of you who perhaps were uh, older or come from mainline, we used hymnals. And I remember... Every service, turn in your hymnal to hymn number 287. We're going to sing the first, second, and fourth verses. And again, I never understood why the third verse was always evil. We never did the third verse. I don't understand why, but it was always the case. I remember one time they said the fourth one, and I did the third one because I was, rebe- I was rebellious, and it was true, right? But that's how we did. But then one day, I remember, we go to church, and all of a sudden there's a screen set up. I'm like, cool, we're going to watch a movie during service, right? And, and instead of using the hymnal, we saw an overhead projector. And again, I know, I'm old, okay? I get it, right? I have lived life before, you know, gaming consoles and, you know, the internet. But then all of a sudden, we didn't put a hymn up, up there, we put a chorus up there. Well, after that Sunday, we had a different conversation in the lobby. I've been coming to church and I've been, right? The next controversy, and remember, we're Pentecostals, we're crazy, right? drums. One day I show up and there's a drum kit. Now when I say a drum kit, I don't mean like, like, you know, like the drum kits you see today. It was just like that big thing, I know, it was a snare, a little thing there. And it's like, like three pieces. You should see people. You, you, you might as well have put up like a uh, Ozzy Osbourne statue or something like that because people were like, like just sitting down. It didn't matter. They would just look at the drums. And the drummer that got up there was just like, it was, just, it, was just, it was just the most, you know, but these are the conversations we were having. Now, the reason it was interesting is because what was happening is methodology within the church was changing. As I said before, and I'll say again, methodology isn't what we believe. Methodology is something that can change because it's not about the gospel. But what's interesting is, is all of a sudden this conversation of weaker brothers and weaker sisters started coming up. And I remember thinking, I'd never heard of this before, but this is something that was kind of important. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, why is their conscience weak? Their conscience is weak not because it isn't working, but because it operates on the idea an idol is really something. They have consciousness of an idol when they eat meat sacrificed to idols. They eat it as something offered to an idol. So a weak conscience is not a weak in the idea of strength, because I remember thinking, weaker brother. I just like, well, maybe they should just do lift weights or whatever. Maybe they should, you know, like, like go to the gym. Like if they're weak, they should just get stronger. But see, that's the, that's the misunderstanding of what Paul's trying to say here. It's not weaker, but it's sensitive to past experience. They associate the thing with meaning. So I remember 
I use that phrase so much, I'm so sorry. Uh, hashtag sorry, not sorry. But I had a conversation with an individual because one of the things that was happening in the 90s was uh, something called Christian dance. So, you know, there's something called EDM, electric dance music, right? Right? Like, you know, like it's just, it's, it's music for four-year-olds, but apparently everybody seems to like it or whatever, but that's just my own personal opinion. But there's also now these bands coming up that were doing like Christian EDM, like Jesus, right? I don't know how it goes, right? But I remember having a conversation with somebody, and they were really upset about it. I'm like... There's hardly any words. It's like, like, but what they told me was, is they came out of this culture. And for them, when they hear this music, it reminds them of the time they used to take ecstasy and drugs, and they used to do things to violate their own bodies in this context. So what they were associating to this music was something I didn't. Why? It was about their, is their, is their route to salvation. They came out of this, so this was sensitive or weaker, as Paul was saying it. And what was fascinating to me about the conversation is, I, I, again, to me, EDM is moronic, but I wouldn't say sinful. But what is it for them? They are remembering a time when they experienced this, and they acted and behaved in a way that they knew was counter to the kingdom of heaven. Well, guess what? It's not just EDM music. It's drinking alcohol. It's not just... All, like, again, the, the examples that I could give to you about the stuff that we've argued about with Christians has been asking the wrong conversation. A little bit more, and we're almost done here. Verses 9 to 11. But you must be careful so that your freedom does not cause others with a weaker conscience to stumble. For if others see you with your superior knowledge, again, in quotations, Paul is trying to be sarcastic, um, eating in the temple of an idol, won't they be encouraged to violate their conscience by eating food that has been offered to an idol? So because of your superior knowledge, a weak believer for whom Christ died will be destroyed. Now, the answer to this question about what do we do with a weaker brother, a weaker sister, is actually going to surprise you because Paul the Apostle, in many minds, it has a very, he's very severe. Do you know how I know Paul was not liked in the early church? When he dies, he's all alone. So if you ever want to read the saddest letter you'll ever read, read First and Second Timothy. This is the last thing Paul writes before he dies. But the things he says to Timothy are, everyone has abandoned me. I'm all alone in prison. You are the only person who cares about me. What that just tells me is that Paul, he was a, a, he was a figure in the early church that was, that was like so great and so mighty, you would think that he would be. But he was also true to the gospel and to what Christ called him to. And in the end, he was abandoned by people. And we go, okay. So what's interesting about this is that what Paul's decision about how he treats the weaker brother and sister is actually kind of interesting. Because, again, what, what's Paul going to do here? Paul begins by referring to the party in the church who is okay with eating meat sacrificed to idols, and he quotes them as saying, all of us possess knowledge. They're referring to knowing that these idols are nothing and there is only one God. For them, this knowledge allows them to eat meat sacrificed to idols, but, but Paul confronts the heart attitude behind it when he corrects them. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And this is the important part. See, as Christians, we can talk about our freedom, and I have been guilty of this, but what Paul is trying to say is that it's not freedom that you should be asking yourself, but it's love. Look at Paul's solution to this. And again, this, this solution surprised me. Look at the end of the chapter, verses 12 to 13. And when you sin against other believers by encouraging them to do something they believe is wrong, you are sinning against Christ. So what I, if, if what I eat causes another believer to sin... I will never eat meat again as long as I live, for I don't want to cause another believer to stumble. See, what happens here is so interesting, is Christians and the church in Canada, locally even, have been talking about freedom a lot, right? Again, please hear me very clearly, we're not a political church, we will never be a political church. But what we were as a church, we were a church that tried to conform to the rules that were set up for us. Why? Because we were a church that met in the movie theater. And I said to you, in those days, if you can remember, which is just last year, our church would follow whatever rules that the theater had. Because we knew that A, the owner, plus the workers in the theater are looking at us. 
and they would look at us in such a way to see how would we align ourselves. Because there was an argument that could be made, and there are people who have left our church who didn't like the argument that I made. Because what they wanted was, you should tell them about our freedom. And our freedom is we don't have to conform to these rules. And there was a time where the government lifted restrictions and said, you could do whatever you feel comfortable with, but I said to you as a church, whatever John Tut, the owner of the Princess Twin Cinemas, tells us to do, we will still do. Because it wasn't about freedom for me. It was about heart attitude. It was about the message that we were going to portray to the community at large. And see, this is the part that really kind of hit home to me. Because the problem, the, the word that Paul uses for stumble is, is, is a Greek word that looks like scandal or scandalizo. And this is what it means. It's a trap or a snare. What Paul is saying is that, do you care about being right or your freedom, or do you care about a brother and sister in Jesus? And that's actually a really interesting conversation, isn't it? Because most people tend to believe that they are right or their freedom is more important than their brothers and sisters. Now, this hit, hit home to me. There's a couple of quotes, one by R.C. Sproul and by another uh, commentator. Her name is Michelle Morris. And I'm going to show you how I kind of came to the realization of how important this chapter 8 was. First of all, R.C. Sproul says this. You do not possess an overly scrupulous or weak conscience when you refrain from an activity that invites temptation. Pause. Remember we started off this conversation talking about sobriety. Remember I said to you that in the early days of sobriety, you must understand the triggers that are going to remove or, or, or set traps for you or temptations for you for uh, relapsing, Right? Now go on. For example, if you're prone to drunkenness and you refrain from drinking alcohol, this actually reveals a discerning conscience, not a weak one. You only step into error when you dictate other people's consciences according to your own, or if you consider something to be inherently wrong that God has not said is sinful, that is legalism. So how does, how does this play out? What it plays out is simply this, is we look at our freedom, we go, you know what, in the confines of our own home, with no one else around, as long as what we're doing is not sinful, then we have freedom to live that out. But when we are amongst other brothers and sisters in Christ, we think about their spiritual lives, their, their, the path to salvation, what that looks like, and we are sensitive to that so that why? It's not about what I'm free to do, but it's my love and my care for the other. Michelle Morris, in her commentary, and again, I think she nails this, and this is what kind of awoke me to the uh-oh moment of this, was she says this, and one of the things that is dividing them is whether, this is the church in Corinth, is whether it's okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols or not. Now, I admit, I figure, as I scanned through this letter a few weeks ago, that this would be a section we would kind of blow past. Who cares about the debate whether we eat meat sacrificed to idols or not? It is a non-issue today. But as I prepared for this week's lesson, I could not help but notice that if I substituted wearing masks for eating meat sacrificed to idols, we had an incredibly applicable passage of Scripture here. Right? This is, this is the uh-oh part of the conversation. Because what I found really disturbing about the conversation within the church for the last couple of years has been about their freedom as opposed to the weak. There's... There's not many American pastors I like, and that's a tragedy, but I do like Andy Stanley. Uh, now, it's not that I agree with everything that he says, but I think he has a very level head for most things. And Andy Stanley posted this a while back, and I just want to share it with you because I think he's absolutely correct. Andy Stanley says this, disagreement is inevitable. We go, absolutely. Division is a choice. And I kind of go, heck yeah. Our nation has chosen purely. That's... That's America. The church followed suit. See, I think the church missed an incredible opportunity for the last two years. I think our voice has mimicked culture. Therefore, we have been written off by even more so of culture. Why? Because it, it was our puffed up knowledge, not the weaker brother, that really stood out to people. Please hear me very clearly. I don't think the government did everything right. As a matter of fact, I think they did most things wrong. But that's my own personal opinion. But what I was aware that there were people in our culture who were genuinely afraid and people who were still afraid. 
So do I, as a pastor with superior knowledge, and my superior knowledge, I mean, my, work, my wife is a nurse and she works for public health. She knows this stuff. She knows efficacy of vaccines. She knows the uh, contagion rate with the community. She's got superior knowledge. Do I let that dictate how I treat people or talk to people? Well, if I want to be a jerk, then yes. But if I care truly for the people, and I care truly for not bringing shame to Jesus, well, I guess the answer has to be no. What does Paul say in verse 13? If eating meat offends somebody, I will never eat meat again. Please hear me very clearly. There's only a couple of things in life that scare me. Spiders and vegetarianism, okay? <laughs> That's it. That's it, people, okay? So, but if Paul himself will say, I would rather omit eating meat amongst others because of the sensitivity of what they're about, because what is Paul saying? I care more about their spiritual development. I don't want to scandalize them. I don't want to cause them to fall. That is, means more to me their eternal state as opposed to their temporary one. Because what does Paul say? An idol is nothing. It means nothing. It has no value. Only there is only one God, right? The Shema, the Jewish prayer. There's only one God, Israel, and his name is Yahweh. Paul knows but that doesn't stop him from thinking about the other. And the problem with the church, which is a statement we could say in many different ways, the problem with the Western church, I think it's more an accurate statement, is we really haven't thought about the weaker. We really haven't thought about the other. And because we haven't done so, I feel that we've lost an opportunity. I, I really do. And as I go out into the world to interact with people, all I do say is, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. Yes, I understand. I know. Yes, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's all. That's, that, that's it. That's the gospel to me today, just saying I'm sorry to people. Because, again, the church hasn't figured out the weaker part. And, again, like I said to you, this is not a message that Paul just says once. It actually is going to come up. Again, Four chapters, Paul is going to talk about freedom in different ways, but it's always going to come back to the other. Paul's going to say, don't use your freedom as a way or a reason to make or hinder other people's approaching the gospel. Christ is greater than your ego. Christ is greater than your rightness. And I go, <laughs> that takes a lot of humility, Paul. Paul's like, have you met Jesus? Paul, that takes a lot of me setting aside my own preferences. Oh, Paul would say to me, I think you might have dropped your cross. Time to pick that back up again. Right? What, what's the essence of Christian? Self-sacrifice. Humility. Servanthood. These are the exact opposite postures of Western culture. And when Christianity, Western Christianity aligns itself with arrogance and pride and power, gospel does not come through, and rightfully so. So let me close here with a couple of statements. One, authentic Christianity is best understood in two tensions. First, our posture before God. We go, yeah, that makes sense. Second, our posture towards the other. I use the word other just because I think the one another isn't another Christian, right? What does Jesus say? What good is it if you love those who love you? Don't the pagans do that? If Christianity is seen as treating people who believe, think, and act the way we do, that's not Christianity. That's just country club. If we use our superior knowledge to puff ourselves and our positions up, then we are deceived and our heart attitude is exposed. But if we consider others, then we will curb our need to be right and focus more on our need, uh, on our need to love. And this is where I think Paul really nails his home. And again, as I told you, he talks about this for four chapters. I'm going to close with this last verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22 to 23. When I am with those who are weak, I share their weakness. For I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. I do everything to spread the good news and share it in its blessing. See, I, I know this may, hard, may be hard for some of you to believe. I like being right. But you know the funny thing about that? You are all the same as well, too. We all like to be right. 
and we'll research and we'll show YouTube videos and we'll have Facebook posts and we'll have this person or that person who backs us up. That's all just confirmation bias. It's not really being right. It's just listening to information that backs up what we believe to be true. But Paul's saying, listen, if you could just set aside being right for a second and ask yourself this, how can the church be weak so that those who are weak will see common ground with us? How can we as Christ followers be weak so that, and I love this fact here. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can. What to save everyone? No, some. Because even in our weakness, it doesn't mean everyone's going to agree with us. But what is he saying here? Let's remove the barriers of ego and rightness. And instead, let's have conversations about Christ that remove the baggage that culture places upon Jesus. And let's actually have a real conversation about the gospel. Right? Remember I've said to you, if someone says, are you a Christian? Don't say yes or no. Ask them to define the term. And when they define the term, then you can have a better conversation of their understanding of what it means to be a Christ follower. Because if I know Western society pretty well, you have to unpack some things and you have to reorient them because they may have a negative understanding of what that looks like. And we go, okay. When I am with those who are weak, I share their weakness. For I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. I do everything to spread the good news and share in its blessing. I'm going to spread the good news, the gospel. I don't want to spread Raja. I don't want to spread my posture on this topic. I want to spread the gospel. I want to spread Jesus. Therefore, I will think of the other. I will submit myself to the other because I want everyone to have an unencumbered view of the cross. Let's pray. We do this every week. I'm not going to make you do anything. Heads bowed, eyes closed. This is just a moment to reflect. This is just a moment to, add, to do kind of a, a gut check. And the gut check goes something like this. Have we looked at our quote-unquote rightness or being right as being more important than being loving. And this is arrayed in, in so many different aspects of our lives. Because if that's the case, then I just think you need to ask for forgiveness. I need to ask for forgiveness. We as a church corporately need to ask for forgiveness because we are asking the wrong question. We are using our, our freedom as a hammer to bash other people instead of talking about setting aside our freedom, become weak, to be servants, to be Christ-like to those who need to hear it. My job, my goal as a Christ follower, not your pastor, but just simply as a Christ follower, is to do everything I can so that people experience Jesus not my filter, not my understanding, but Jesus, the true Christ. Because I believe Jesus, that Jesus, is irresistible. But that's not the Jesus the world is encountering. And I want to remove as much as possible so that we can let people who are weak, people who are, who are wrestling, experience that. Dear Lord Jesus, we as a church, we as a community, corporately, we just say we're sorry. And by that sorry, what we are saying is that perhaps over the last couple of years, we have used our rightness as a way to bludgeon other people into believing our position. It doesn't mean we can't have opinions. It doesn't mean that we can't have personal beliefs. It just means that, Lord, when we call ourselves Christ follower, that is the most important identifier. That is the most important label. It's not our, 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 not our gender, not our sexuality, not our demographic, not our skin color, not any label that culture looks at, but instead it's Jesus. Christ alone is the most important identifier. And because of that, I try, we try to do everything that we can to let Christ come through clearly as opposed hindered by our rightness in certain issues. Lord, if we have been that way, if we have acted that way, then we repent and we apologize. Jesus, please come through clearly. Please come through precisely with who and what you are, not with what we think you should be. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.